0: Now, tonight, if you'll take your Bible, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, I'm going to speak on the subject this evening, the birth and the death of freedom, the birth and the death of freedom. There in Exodus chapter 12 is the story of the Passover that the Jews still to this day observe on an annual basis. The Jewish tradition in Jewish families is for the youngest child present at the Passover, the cedar ceremony, they call it. The youngest child reads the Passover story to the family once they're of reading age. And then the family discusses four questions. The first of the four questions from this text is, What makes this night like no other night? What makes this night like no other night? Well, then they answer that and they discuss it. And the whole idea is to inculcate that knowledge, to train those children, the next generation, to bring them along so they'll never forget their Jewish heritage. Well, the Jews, we find out in the passage, had been slaves in Egypt for 430-some years. And on this night, the Passover night, Israel was granted her freedom by the intervention of Almighty God. And if you'll listen to Jewish people or study Jewish culture and so on, the Passover was the defining moment in all of Jewish history. It was the birth of the nation. A few months ago, I heard Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel today, talk about the Passover being the birth of the Jewish state. And freedom lovers of all kinds, all countries of the world, have been drawn to this passage of Scripture. Because Exodus chapter 12 is unique. It is the first time in the history of mankind when a nation was born in freedom. There have been lots of nations before this, but they were not born in freedom. They were under tyrants and totalitarians, and nations were usually ruled by kings and potentates in those days. This is the first example of a nation born in freedom from its very beginning. That people who have been slaves for four and a half centuries have now become free people. Freedom is practiced in all areas of their life. Now, the Scriptures record the event here, but I'm going to go back to give just a a little touch of background to it. And I'd like for you to go back to chapter 5 and verse 1 with me, and you'll read these words. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in, and they told Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, of course, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me or serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh mocked them. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord and neither will I let Israel go. And in in the following verses and the next five chapters or more, you find the plagues. God said, you're going to let my people go. And he sent the plagues to them, 10 different plagues, culminating with the very last one where God instructed everybody in Egypt, the Egyptians as well as the Jews, of course, to sacrifice a lamb, put the blood over the door post, uh, at the top of the door and on the side post, and form a cross, in essence, with blood a picture of the cross of Christ that would come centuries later. And this was to indicate that the people were trusting in the blood of the Lamb for their soul's salvation. But this wasn't just about their soul. This was also about freedom. And so we pick up the reading in chapter number 12 and in verse 12, and I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague will not be upon you, upon that house to destroy you, when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations you shall keep it a feast for an ordinance forever and now thousands of years later the Jewish people still annually celebrate the Passover it is one of the two highest holy days that they in which in which they remember their heritage the other is the day of atonement now Go down to verse 29 with me. For the sake of time, we'll have to skip some verses. It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn even of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night. He said, rise up and get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. And go, serve the Lord as you have said. And take your flocks and your herds as you have said. And be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we're all dead men. And so they left that night in the dead of night, after observing the Passover supper. And if you will go down to the last verse of the chapter, it came to pass that self-same day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. And so two, two and a half million people marched out of the land of Egypt that night After Pharaoh said, I've had enough of your plagues, you've observed your Passover, get out of here and go. Now, this event is spiritually significant. Many times I have preached on it. You've heard other preachers preach on it. It's one of the great texts in the Bible to preach a message on salvation. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plan of salvation is just as clear as it can be here. So it is a spiritual text, but it is also a political text. And to the Jews, this is not just a spiritual message. This is the day when their nation was born. This is the birth of freedom for the Jewish state. Now, I think that there's something even to learn from what I just said there. Because as I read through the rest of my Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets brought a message from God that was a spiritual message. But the Old Testament prophets also preached very strongly on political issues. You can't read but what they are talking about the culture of the day. But what they are preaching messages that literally lambasted the king and the leadership of the country they held back nothing we have got this idea in america because of a misunderstanding of what church and state means that for some reason when we walk in a church we're never supposed to address anything that has any political overtones in doing that we have robbed you we have robbed our people because our people need to be able to put their bible in one hand The news events of the day, on the other hand, and they need to be able to understand the culture in in terms of the Bible. Sometime back, a man said to me, he said, You know, I, I think you're too political. I can't tell if I'm listening to the Bible or Fox News when I listen to you. And I said, I don't apologize for that, sir. Not one bit. In fact, that's one of the highest compliments anybody ever gave me. Because what you just said is, my preaching is relevant. Because if all I did was preach little devotional messages, it would make a bit of difference to a lot of people. People need to be able to look out at the culture in which they live, where you will go to work in the morning. And they need to be able to understand it in the light of the Holy Scripture. Now, number one with me tonight is the basis of their freedom was their covenant with God. I want you to again turn with me to chapter nineteen. And in Exodus nineteen and verse number three, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain at Sinai, saying, Thou shalt thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I am going to bear you on eagle's wings and how I brought you out of Egypt myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, won't you circle that word covenant in your Bible? This is a covenant relationship that is beginning here, that is being established between God and the people of the nation of Israel. And he says to them, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant Then I'm going to bless you. You will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the other people on the earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you're to speak to the children of Israel. Tell them I would like to establish a covenant with them. Verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people. He laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded. And all the people answered together, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, God made an offer. I want to form a covenant relationship with you, the nation of Israel. He went to tell the people. The people said, We accept that covenant. We'll make that agreement. All that the Lord has said, we will do. And if you will notice there at the end of the verse, and Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. As if the Lord didn't know, huh? But he said, basically, look, the people said they take your agreement. They accept your covenant. We are now in this covenant relationship together. Notice some things about the covenant that established the covenant right there. What is a covenant? You need to know the definition of a covenant as a Christian, because the Bible is full of covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made one with Adam. He made one with Moses. He made one with David. The Bible's full of covenants. If you don't understand a covenant, then there's much of the scripture that you will miss. What is a covenant? A covenant is a morally binding agreement between two or more parties. A covenant, a morally binding agreement. It has as its basis morality. A morally binding agreement between two or more parties. Sometimes it could be three or four parties. When a man and a woman stand here and are married, that's not a legal contract per se, It is a covenant, a morally binding, legal contract between two or more parties. Covenant, an important Bible word. Who are the parties in this covenant? It's Almighty God himself, and it's the nation of Israel. And I want you to notice it's freely entered into. In verse 8, the people said, we accept it. There was no coercion. They didn't have to make the covenant with God that day, but they chose to make that covenant. It was in their best interest to make that covenant. All that the Lord has said to us we will do. They freely entered the covenant. The details of this covenant contain most of the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those books you will find 613 commandments in God's covenant with the nation of Israel. 613 commands, and the commands cover the whole sphere of life, the whole spectrum of life. It involves everything. It involves their faith and their religion, but it involves their political life, their moral law, their civil law. It involves regulations for the family, for marriage, for business operations. It covered the whole gamut of life, the covenant with God contained in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And notice it's morally binding. In fact, in Deuteronomy, there are two or three chapters where it tells you the blessings if they obey the covenant. And I mean, there are long chapters. God said in all these ways, I will bless you if you keep the covenant and then You have the cursings if people break the covenant and they don't obey the law of God. And something unique about this covenant is it involved every single member of the nation. Everybody had their responsibilities. Personal responsibility was a big part of the covenant with Almighty God. And so there were no passive people, there weren't people then who said, I don't think I'll vote. If it involved the nation, you were to participate. Every member of Israel was also a participant in the covenant. Now, as Benjamin Netanyahu said recently, Exodus chapter 12 is the birth of the state of Israel. Exodus chapter 12 is the birth of freedom because no nation up to this point that we know of in all of history had been a free people. But now these ex-slaves were all freed and God had put his blessing upon them. He warned them, though, if you violate the covenant, then you will be carried away from your land. And hundreds of years later, they turned from God. You know the story. Wicked king, wicked leader after wicked leader, leading them astray. And finally, we see them carried away captive the northern kingdom into Assyria, and the southern kingdom carried captive into Babylon. And for 70 years, I talked about it today with Ezra the priest. This is the birth of freedom, and the captivity was the death of their freedom because then they were slaves again. This is the model, Exodus chapter 12, on which America was founded and established. Let me say it again. When the earliest people who came to this country from Europe, when they were looking for a model of how to begin a new nation in a wilderness land, they looked to Exodus chapter 12. That is why this is so critically important as a chapter. Now, I'm not inferring that Israel... Or that America is Israel. America is not Israel. We are not replacement theology people. We don't believe that now the church has replaced Israel in God's economy. But we do know that between America and Israel, there are many parallels. There are many, many similarities between the founding of America and uh, the nation of Israel in its beginnings. In fact, I came across a very interesting fact this week. On the journey from England to Massachusetts on the Mayflower, when the pilgrims came over on that initial visit, William Bradford, who was their leader, sat on the deck of the ship over and over, time after time. He opened his Bible and gathered those people around him, and he taught them, the Bible as the foundation for their freedom what chapter in the Bible do you think William Bradford taught them he did a thorough uh, exegesis and exposition of the 12th chapter of Exodus and on that journey he taught them thoroughly 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 about the birth of freedom in Israel as a parallel of where they were going and when they got to the new world they wrote out a document. It's very short, 200 and some words, 250 words or so. We know it today as the Mayflower Compact. What is a compact? A compact is another word here for a covenant. The Mayflower Covenant. The 55 people on board the Mayflower covenanted together. They made a morally Banding, a, a, a morally binding agreement between them and uh, and, and their leadership, and, and it was really an agreement with each other of how they would live and how they would act in the new world. Now, when the nation was finally established in 1776, which was 150 or more years later, America's Formed a co- America formed a covenant too. And the covenant, it, we know it today, it was written down. And we have a name for that covenant. We call it the Declaration of Independence. We call it the Constitution of the United States. Both of them bear remarkable semblance to covenants. They're binding moral agreements in which two or more parties, people come together. And they commit themselves to live under the rules, the regulations, the principles of that covenant. And in both of those documents, our founding fathers recognized that the idea of natural rights, that every human being is born with natural rights, they're not government issued rights. Our rights, our natural rights, don't come from the government of the United States. Don't ever think that for one second. Our rights come from God. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to live our lives as we wish within the constraints of the law. Those rights come from God, not from the government. Governments change But God never changes, and he is the bestower of human rights. America practiced freedom then, and America became known as the land of the free and the home of the brave. America was known as the city on the hill, and it was pictured as being this city gleaming with light into the darkness of the world about it. And that all the nations of the earth were gathered around that hill. They could look up on that hill and they would see America. They would see the light of freedom shining. And the whole world would be inspired. And not only were they inspired, but they aspired. They aspired to come and visit this country where people could worship God the way that they chose to worship him or not worship him at all if they wished. And people could own property and people could make a living and people would have almost unlimited opportunities to be able to use their abilities and their talents as they wished and the rest of the world recognized that too by the way the rest of the world said America is the most unique nation in all of history the freest nation of all in fact the world so recognized it that the French paid for a, 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 a great statue and we know her today as the Statue of Liberty, Lady Liberty and they sent it over here on ships and then welded it together as they put it together there in the harbor in New York City I mean it, America was universally recognized as the freest place that you could live on the entire earth I say that because you know it is so sad to watch today what's happening in the country. This woke culture that we have that makes America bad. I mean, America is nothing but a, uh, an oppressive state. Look how we've treated people through the centuries. Funny today that just a bunch of radical leftists think that because the whole world thought this was the freest place on the planet until just a few years ago. But America has an Achilles heel. An Achilles heel is a vulnerability, a weakness. And that is, Americans so value freedom that Americans want freedom without limits. And freedom without limits is not freedom, freedom without limits is lawlessness. Freedom without limits is anarchy. It's libertinism. Freedom without limits destroys freedom in the name of freedom. I want to say that again. I hope you'll get it because it's what's happening right now as I stand here. Freedom uh, freedom without limits destroys freedom in the name of freedom. While we talk about freedom, we're actually destroying freedom. Freedom without personal responsibility can't last very long. Freedom without personal responsibility cannot endure. Think about it. I have a lot of freedom, but I don't have the right to yell, fire in a crowded room where people could be trampled. See, my rights, my freedom has to have some sort of limitation so that your rights are not violated. For 47 years now, we've had a big debate in America, probably the biggest single debate of all. It involves more people than any other debate. The issue is this, does a mother have freedom to take the life of the child that she's carrying in her body. Now, those who would say freedom is unlimited say, yeah, she can have that baby killed and removed from her body if she wishes. But those of us who say, we believe in freedom, but freedom has to have limits or it becomes, it, it, it becomes an awful thing. It becomes lawlessness. And we say, no, somewhere there, her freedom ends, and the life of that baby has to also be recognized and valued. President Lincoln, when he was in office, gave a parable. And he had such common sense, you know. He'd tell a little story, and then it would have such meaning. He talked about a shepherd who drove a wolf out of a sheepfold. And then he said, to the sheep, that shepherd is a liberator. To the sheep, they love and respect that shepherd who drove that wolf away. But to the wolf, that shepherd is a despot. He's a tyrant. He is uh, the destroyer of their freedom. Freedom must have limits, and when a nation says there's nothing that's beyond the pale, then you can watch the deterioration and disintegration of that nation. Josh McDowell, a leading apologist of our day, points out in one of his books that there have been two revolutions in modern-day history. There was the 1776 Revolution in America, the War of Independence. And he says the War of Independence produced the Declaration of Independence and it produced the Constitution, two of the three greatest political documents in the history of mankind, the other one being the Magna Carta. That the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution have given more freedom to more people than any other documents in in recorded history. They came out of that war of independence guaranteeing the freedom of the people perpetually the other revolution is the French Revolution 1789 it set the common people though it it was different it was not built around the idea of a constitutional republic with people living under the constitution being the highest law of the land France was all a foment with revolutionary spirit I'm afraid like America today. And the French Revolution set various, set groups against other groups in the culture. It segmented the culture into groups. And it pitted them one against the other. First of all, the common people were stirred up by these revolutionaries. And the common people went against the king. You know the story of Marie Antoinette and King Louis, what was it, 16th or 15th, whatever he was. How they came to the palace in Versailles and they ripped them out of there and they took them to the guillotine and they, they beheaded them. And then they took the princes. And then they took the royal family. And then they took one, after, as far as they could trace anybody being related to the royal family, they took them and they beheaded them. Hundreds and hundreds of the royal family were destroyed at that time. And then the thing kind of began to feed on itself, and they said, We're oppressed, and and there's injustice against us. And they began to kill the judges, and they hunted down every judge in France that they could find, and they beheaded them. All of them went to the guillotine. Literally, blood ran down the main streets of Paris. So many people were dying and then they killed all the lawyers they blamed the lawyers for their injustices and their plight and then after they had killed everybody there that they knew how to find they turned against the church and hundreds maybe thousands i don't know how many the priests then were the targets and the church was corrupt and the courts were corrupt and the royal family was corrupt But they didn't handle it in the right way. They didn't handle it legally. They just handled it with rage. And the streets of Paris again ran with the blood of the churchmen. They took the worst harlot, prostitute, they could find in all of Paris. And they had her stand on the altar of the Notre Dame Cathedral that burned partially a year or two ago. And she stood there naked and then thousands of the rabble would come by and they would cross themselves before her and act like they were praying and worshiping her. They said, there is no God except the God of reason. And then after they had gotten through with the church, they went after the property owners and the landowners. And if you owned a piece of property, if you owned a house, if you owned a farm, then they came after you. And the thing fed on itself and fed on itself and fed on itself. The darkest, most violent, evil time, perhaps, that we know about. In fact, when you studied it in history, you talk, they talked about Robespierre and all of those guys that were in that, leading that thing over there. And then what did they end up calling it? The reign of terror. The darkest days in the history of all of Europe. One group against another. Pitted against each other. Violent, burning, raping, sacking, and killing. And that's what happens when you pit people against each other and create division in the country. It can actually... uh, Pray God it never happens again anywhere, but it could actually happen when everybody is so divided and and the political leaders feed on the hate. I don't wish this on anybody. Make it clear. Did you not read, though, this week that Nancy Pelosi's house was vandalized by Antifa? And you know what I thought when I read that? Mm Mm-hmm. What goes around comes around, Nancy. And when you feed that class hatred and those identity politics, that's what you're going to get some, at some point. It's going to come back against everybody. Now, our country's now so tragically divided and divided into groups. They don't call it groups. They call it identity politics. What is Id- uh, identity politics? It's when you are defined as a member of a group, a group in which you are a member of rather than by your personal character. And so you're not looked at as an individual anymore. You're looked at as you're white or you're black, you're Hispanic or you're Asian, you're rich or you're poor or you're, you know, you're old or you're young. And they pit these groups against each other. These, the politicians are the guys who are doing this. And you're no longer judged by your character and your individuality and your personhood. You're judged as you're a member of a certain group. Divided the races. Martin Luther King was famous for saying, I look forward to the day when a man is judged by the content of his character, not the color of his skin. And man, we made so much progress. And now that's being reversed because a man now is judged more by the color of his skin than he is the content of his character. We're divided by sex. To be female is to be oppressed. And all you men, we are oppressors. Now, I don't think my wife would say she's oppressed. I don't know. Maybe I ought to go further on this one. I don't think my wife would say she's an oppressed person. I certainly never intended to oppress. But do you know what? Because I am male and she is female, she is the oppressed in this culture and I'm the oppressor. We judge people by the group, identity, politics, dividing, slicing up the culture. In the economic side of it, if I'm poor, I'm oppressed, I'm a victim. And if I'm well off and affluent, I'm an oppressor by virtue of the fact that I've prospered. There's seven, I looked it up. I'm not making this up. I looked this up. You can look it up, Google it. After you get home, please don't do it now. But you can Google that, Google gender identities. There's 72. I said 72 gender identities. Now listed, there are all kinds of people: uh, uh, a binary, cis, whatever you know. And all of them, every single one of them, are victims of something pitting people one against another. And of course, when it comes to religion, oh, Christianity has been nothing but an oppressive religion. And so we have this anti-Christian bias building. Now listen to me, just reason with me. When you set one group of people against another and you keep pouring the gas on it from the media... And there's no covenant, no morally binding thing that we all commonly agree on anymore. You have another French Revolution. You don't have an American revolution that craved independence and freedom. What you have is a raw power struggle. If you don't think that's true, look over to Georgia tonight. A raw power struggle, period. Everything else has been forgotten. And so America in 2021 is beginning to look more like France 1789 than she looks like America's 1776. And why is it? What is the underlying cause? Okay, now I've got on my preacher hat. America has broken her covenant with God. America has broken her covenant with God and with her own constitution. What's the constitution? Those judges up there in Washington don't give a fig about the constitution. No, they talk about it all the time. They found every kind of deviancy and bizarre thing in the world in the constitution. The founders are spinning in their grave as they hear about the news of it. How in the world do you find same-sex marriage in the Constitution? Tell me. How do you find abortion in the Constitution? Tell me. I would tremble to be one of those guys in their shoes standing before Almighty God for what they've done to this country. And America's just systematically and deliberately destroying our Judeo-Christian heritage. i watch with horror is that our history is revised and destroyed. Our traditions are destroyed. And it, it's left us with no commonly held set of beliefs. Where in America is there something that everybody can rally around again? You know the highest value of this society? It's not love, it's not truth. You know the highest value in this society? Just think of all the stuff that you read. It's diversity. People now are forced to go to a diversity seminar somewhere. Their company requires them to go. It ought to, the highest value of a society ought to be truth. It ought to be love. It ought to be brotherhood. What is it? It emphasizes our differences, pitting one person against another, one group against another, I should say. We don't have any religion that unifies us anymore. We don't have any culture that unifies us anymore. We have subcultures, and a lot of them. We don't have any common belief system, any morally agreed upon principles of even what is right or wrong. The most bizarre and deviant ideas, the Supreme Court listens to them and gives them credibility and rules in their favor. I felt the last time I filled out a marriage license in Florence County, South Carolina, do you know what was written on that marriage license? It used to say, groom and you fill in the, 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 the man's name. And then it said bride and fill in the other name. It's been so long since I've seen that I about forgot what you call them. Do you know what it says now? The party of the first part and the party of the second part. You could put a mannequin in that thing. I mean Are we not stupid as a nation? All of this because America has broken her covenant with God. John Locke in 1689 said, Taking away God dissolves it all. Will and Ariel Durant, modern-day historians of real note, Quote, there is no significant significant example in history before our time of a society successfully maintaining a moral life without the aid of a religion. End quote. Lord James Bryce, the British ambassador from England, 1900 to 1910, lived here for 10 years and wrote a book called The American Commonwealth. He studied American culture and this British nobleman then went back and wrote this book and here's what he said after being here for 10 years and this is 110 years ago. The, the only thing holding America together is its religion. The only thing holding America together is its Religion. And William Butler Yeats, the great English poet in the dark days following World War I, 1919, wrote a poem called The Second Coming. It wasn't about the coming of Christ either, it's a different thing altogether. But here are his words turning and turning in the widening gyre. A gyre is a circular current, a vortex out in the ocean or even in the sky and the wind turning and turning in the widening gyre The the falcon cannot hear the falconer and things fall apart the center cannot hold folks I don't want to depress you but the center cannot hold America is coming unglued as we start this new year. We don't have any common ground anymore. We don't have any common ground. Well, then what are we going to do? Am I going to leave you in depression? I hope not. I don't want you to walk out here and say it's the most negative sermon I ever heard. I have tried, though, to tell you the truth about what's happening in the country and analyze it some. And you know it's the truth. You know it's the truth. So what are, what are God's plans For 2021, for you and for our church, even for the nation. What are God's plans in 2021? Well, as I said this morning, I don't think the quality of Christianity that's been practiced in America, generally speaking, is going to be adequate for the future. It's going to take a stronger type of Christianity Than what we have normally seen in evangelical circles and other circles as well. You know, America has changed so much. America was generally friendly to the church, but now we're seeing that change. We're seeing governors in California and Michigan and New York and Connecticut and Maryland and Pennsylvania try to shut the churches down. Who does a governor think he is that he just arbitrarily just says, I'm going to shut all the churches down for fear somebody will get the virus. And he does it. Thank God for South Carolina again, Mark. It's a good place to be stuck. We've got a governor. I don't know if you heard the governor the other night I wrote him a letter of appreciation. He said, we believe in Jesus Christ. He said this at the lighting of the Christmas tree. We believe in Jesus Christ coming to this earth. We believe that he was God. We believe that he died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And I said, whoo! (laughs) Praise God. I am for that kind of politician. And if I'm politicking, then so be it. But generally speaking, that's not happening. I read a book recently. I referred to it by Rod Dreher called Live Not by Lies. He said, be prepared for a soft totalitarianism. And by that term, soft totalitarianism, he meant government trying to control every aspect of our existence But in spite of everything that has happened in 2020, I'm going to tell you this. Mark it down. God's plan has not changed. It hasn't changed for the country. It hasn't changed for our church. And it hasn't changed for me and for you as individuals. Mike couldn't have sung a better song. He is still in control. Don't you worry about that. And I'd like to close the message by asking you to read with me from the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, and put all this into final perspective here. The prophet Jeremiah is instructing the people prior to the captivity. They're getting ready to be carried away. The Babylonians are knocking on the gate. They're about to lose their freedom and be carried down to Babylon for 70 years. Many of the people, most of the people. They're difficult times. Times unlike any that perhaps we've ever seen. More difficult than any that we face, I believe. But he did not leave those people without hope. And I begin reading in Jeremiah chapter 29 as he's talking to them about the future. And here's what he said beginning in verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captive, whom I have carried to be captive away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. When you get down to Babylon, he said, build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them and take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may not, that you may be increased in Babylon and not diminished and seek the peace or the welfare of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray unto the Lord for even the city that's holding you captive. For in the peace thereof you shall have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets or your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams, which... You have cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years is accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, causing you to return to this place. And I know the thoughts that I think toward you saith the Lord, their are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. So call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. There's the word of the Lord for people facing difficult times. It's as applicable and true today as it was the day that Jeremiah wrote it down. Amen. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.